The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Welcome back, fellow spy nerds, to the Spies Like Us podcast. That is, of course, the podcast where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens large and small. With me, as always, is my trusty buddy, Fred Kennedy. Say hi to the nerds, Fred. Hi, nerds. Glad to be with you. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the movie Official Secrets. And it's about a woman who works for uh, British security. And she stumbles upon a memo that um, it's kind of secret, but it's very disturbing to her. Official Secrets is a 2019 British offering. It dramatizes real-life events from 2003 based on a nonfiction book uh, from 2008 called The Spy Who Tried to Stop War. Um, this is uh, uh, much like our recent episode on um, the torture report. Uh, this is more a story about a whistleblower within the intelligence community than it is about intelligence operations per se. Uh, the intelligence operation at the heart of the matter are uh, involve attempts to manipulate the United Nations Security Council into voting uh, uh, the way the Bush administration wanted them to, uh, leading up to the second time that we invaded Iraq. Uh, featured agencies are the British GCHQ and the American National Security Agency. We've talked a lot about the NSA has featured in a lot of our films up till now. I think this is the first appearance of the GCHQ uh, for us. So I Who she works for. That's who our main character works for. That's right. Um, so... Uh, Let's see what we were able to dig up about them. They, uh, like so many other intelligence agencies in the Western world, uh, has its roots uh, uh, from the World War period. Uh, this started up right after World War One, when the government decided that a peacetime cipher and code-breaking agency was needed. Uh, very famous uh, Alan Turing was a senior staff member of the original agency. Uh, it has repeatedly expanded its scope uh, during World War II, again during the Cold War, and nowadays under the War on Terror. Um, currently tasked with SIGINT, that again is uh, the monitoring of, of signals, radio waves, electronic communications, uh, intelligence, and information assurance. Um, inform we have discovered, we have discussed SIGINT previously, information assurance is the methodology of storing and sending information to the right people at the right time while preventing interception. Um, they answer to the foreign secretary just as MI6 does, but GCHQ is not part of the foreign office. Um, the foreign secretary is described by Wiki as being the fourth most important permanent secretary and uh, it's interesting to note that Britain keeps these two agencies separate from, you know, kind of compartmentalized from each other, where it seems to me that the NSA and CIA kind of work a little bit more hand in hand. Um, MI6 is a little bit involved in the movie, as is Special Branch, 
uh, special branch, again, being the Division of Scotland Yard that assists British intelligence with uh, domestic things. They're like, um, I don't know, the, the part of the police that helps uh, the spies catch other spies if they need to. Yeah, George Smiley in the John Le Carre early books has a friend, a contact in uh, Special Branch mm -hmm. that he goes to for help. Uh, I think it's in either or both a call for the dead order a murder of quality but he has a uh he has a guy he goes through goes to in special branch for when they need police type of work right 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 so. yeah special branch was the uh, uh agency involved in the very first movie we ever did on this podcast um which was uh oh god the man who knew too much the 1934 version um so yeah again as in the uh, as to the matter of of uh, realism, again, this is based on a nonfiction book. As far as I can tell, all the principal characters in the movie are based on and named correctly after real people. They're not using pseudonyms or changing the names around. A notable exception here, possibly, is Frank Coza, who's the author. His name is on the memo that the movie is all about, and. We know that a man answered the phone at the NSA answering to that name, but we still actually don't know who he is, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, I don't think we ever meet him, do we? We do. We do not meet him. And we, act, we like literally we do not know who he is. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story that uh, Martin Freeman, who's a character in this story, told at one time they were doing a presentation like a talk, a Q&A about the movie and a man uh let's see i don't know there was a man in the audience who said uh, who suggested like that frank coza might be hiding in plain sight and then stood up and walked out of the uh q a <laughs> kind of weird yeah. um we've got uh Kira Knightley at the helm of this one. Um most mm -hmm. famous, at least to me and my generation and possibly my nationality, uh, for playing Elizabeth Swan in the Pirates movies. I'm a big fan of those. I like her in them. She mostly does period pieces uh in in her career following uh pirates, uh, which are really not my kind of thing, so I don't see much of her. Uh, in those kind of things. Nice to see her outside of a Pirates movie, for sure. I always hear good things. I hear, you know, she's like a good actor. Um, she pulls mm -hmm. it off in this one for me, for certain. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matt Smith is in this movie, too. He was the 11th Doctor Who. Are you a Doctor Who fan? No, my son is, but he is huge right now because he plays Daemon Targaryen in House of Dragons, which is the prequel to Game of Thrones. So he is huge right now. Right. Okay. Good, good, good. He was a fun doctor, and I like him a lot in mm -hmm. this movie. Yeah. Um, interestingly, too, uh, he did you ever watch the, the newest uh, Sherlock Holmes TV show? With, yeah. Okay. He auditioned for the yeah. Watson role in that. And uh, at the cover batch beat him out, right? Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch had, beat him they out. Had, they had already signed him. Well, see, oh. he auditioned for Watson, but oh. and the producer 
after seeing his interviews, said, wow, this guy would have actually been a really good Sherlock Holmes, but we've already yeah. signed Benedict Cumberbatch. So it's mm-hmm. it was it was close. Um, yeah. Yeah, it seems like everybody's playing Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Henry Cavall plays him in the Enola Holmes. <coughs> that's ba- that's uh, supposedly his sister. Okay. And uh, Enola Holmes, it's on Netflix now. It's the second one. And uh, Sherlock is in it, played by Henry Cavall. Now, for the longest time, I have a confession to make. I thought that Ray Fiennes had a brother named Ralph Fiennes. Because... He- it's spelled. He does have a brother. He does. Yeah, but he does have. We looked it up. He does have a brother, right? Yes, but that's, but it's pronounced Rafe. It's pronounced Rafe. I think. Well, I oh I, 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 just, I looked it up. I always well. I guess I thought it was just Ray. Maybe it no, is. Rafe. I looked it up. It, yeah, they show you in a pronunciation thing that it says Rafe. Oh, okay. So it's just but, the fact yeah. that his last name is Fines that kind of disguises that F. Yeah, so and but complicates time, it Ralph, too that he. I thought Ralph and Ray Fiennes were two different guys. So I was yeah. mistaken about that. But yeah. So what complicates um, it though is that he does have a brother that is an actor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um he was in uh I first saw him in a movie called Quiz Show. Don't know if you've seen that. I highly recommend it. It's an yeah. amazing movie. Um I first saw him playing the Nazi in Schindler's List. Ah. Oh, I would I guess that's when I first saw him too. I didn't I didn't remember him as much. And since wow. then, he's been typecast as bad guys all the way up through Voldemort with Harry Potter. He, he plays Voldemort? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, and he replaced Judy Dench as M in the, J, in, yeah. in the Craig Bond films. Um, pretty, pretty capably, I would say. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't yeah. replace, you can't replace Judy Dench. Um, but uh, yeah, now then, oh, here's another confusion I had. This guy, Reese Ifans, I had him confused with Peter Stormare for a long, long, long time. Um, mm. I think I think it doesn't actually make sense because I think Peter Stormare is much older now. But mm. seriously, I looked at some side-by-side pictures, especially of like him in Fargo, of Stormare in Fargo, compared to the reporter that he plays in this movie. Um, I mean, they look... What's the name again? What's his name again? Peter Stormare or Reese Ifans? Yeah, well, the guy who plays the very loud and rude reporter who That's goes right. to Washington. That's right. I like- All right, so he's, he, again, like um, like the other guy from Game of Thrones, he plays King Viserys Targaryen in the House of Dragons. So two, now, so so. two guys from this movie or in house of dragons right oh, okay cool right cool and they're both targaryens they're brothers oh. they play brothers oh excellent um i will tell yeah. you this this character that he plays the reporter is kind of a small part in this movie but very good um yeah this guy is exactly who i would have been if my high school guidance counselor had described the job of journalist <laughs> to me when I was in high school, I would have said yes. Because you could get away with screaming at the boss and yes. swearing at him and storming yes. out. Yeah. 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 I want to travel travel the world and tell truth to power and and bitch at my editor. Um yeah. and and get all my get all my meals uh receipts paid for. That editor <laughs> was a piece of work, wasn't he? He's good. The newsroom scenes are my favorite from the movie. We'll get to those. Yeah. Um yeah. 
park bench check. Do we pass or not? Do we have a scene where two spies sit at a park bench discussing secrets? Uh, did you say something else stood in for the park bench? That's right. Well, this is the one you brought up. We we are officially now, if we have two people meeting in a parking garage, <laughs> yeah. we consider that a pass. We have one of those. Um, it's considered a conspiracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we also Two have a, people together. We also have a bench scene in an indoor tennis court, which I would give partial credit to the park bench sure. for that, even though there's no one around yep. to, to, to see what they're talking about. She works for GHHQ, and she comes across it um, on her computer, and she's disturbed by it because it is. it looks like it is a memo trying to get uh, information on the uh, part of the UN Security Council mm-hmm. to get dirt on them, to bribe them into supporting the war in Iraq. And she's disturbed by that. Heavens, Fred, that doesn't sound knows. very ethical. No, no. And uh, so, and then she goes from there and she has this. Uh, crisis of conscience about what she should do, where she should go, uh, thoughts of treason, but also thoughts of, uh, you know, British and American lives uh, going to war for um, an illegal reason. Sure. And we find out more about that a little bit later. I'm going to get into some specifics about the memo. Um, okay. The, uh, yes, it's a request from the NSA. Uh, from a guy named, we, I just said his name a minute ago, and now I can't even remember it. Frank Coza. Frank Coza. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a request from the NSA to the G G L G H. I think I got the acronym wrong. Oh my god. G G C H Q. Thank you. The G C H Q. They're looking for any and all compromising information on some certain non-permanent members of the United. Nations Security Council, which I'll start saying UNSC. Um, the the UNSC, it's 15 seats. Five of them are permanent. Uh, that's the US, France, Britain, Russia, and China. Um, and then they have 10 non-permanent seats, which get voted in for uh, selections of two term, uh, two-year terms and I noticed that like all the countries that are at least that are being targeted by this operation, they're pretty small countries, uh, not to be rude to the people of those countries. I'm sure they're beautiful. Um, but, uh, it feels like they, like the big, the big dogs don't really want any other big dogs on the council, <laughs> you know? Well, they don't have veto. The big dogs have veto, veto partner, uh-huh. uh, power, which is one of the reasons why, the UN has no teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, um, you know, like we can't do anything because Russian will sanction it, sanction it, you know, and uh, or vice versa. You know, if we mess around in Central America sure. and the UN tries to, you know, hold us responsible for that, back in the eighties, we'll veto that. So, and as we're yeah. going to see, you know, in this movie and from the historical events. Uh, the Bush administration was just trying to use the UNSC to get a veneer of respectability or authenticity on his planned invasion. But when he didn't get it, he just figured out how to justify it by other means. So when we look at history, 
um, countries that first search for a pretext for war, like the bombing of the Maine and the Spanish-American War, okay. and the, um, the Gulf of the Tonkin. Maine. Yeah, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. our uh, boats were supposedly fired upon. Uh, and that was very murky, a bunch of murky evidence, but LBJ used that to uh, to escalate. So, uh, and we see here too, when a country wants to go to war, they'll first look for a pretext. And, uh, but as we see from here, uh, nothing's going to stop them. Yeah, I think once it's decided, when they it's, pretty, go. it's pretty much decided. Um, now she uses a zip drive a little bit of antiquated technology that actually didn't stick around that long, if I remember right, to uh, move the memo from her computer to the print room, print out a copy and sneak out with it. Um, I talked about this in the torture report as well. I don't believe that document security in these places is, is this lax. Um, my understanding is like it's very tight controls. Like they have records of who's even not even just who has access to stuff, but who's even read it, who's even allowed to know it exists kind of stuff. But I have been thinking about it in both cases and I've got a new theory. I want you to consider three things, both. Now these are just assume for a second that I'm right. And the document security handling that we see in this movies is totally bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought of three things that might make a good reason why it should be that way. Number one, if they showed us how Daniel or Catherine actually snuck the documents out, they might be implicating those whistleblowers legally. You know, like I, you know, it might, there might be a little hand wavy stuff, something to protect those people. Um, Cause maybe they did do something that was, you know, technically very, very illegal uh, to get the documents out. Um, number two, if they showed us how the documents actually got snuck out, well, you're also like you're threatening national security there. You're printing a handbook on how to sneak, how spies could sneak documents out of these places. And third, since both of these movies seem to be so pro whistleblower and pro you know, this kind of thing, they might not be showing how the documents were actually snuck out so that they're not tipping the security agencies off on how to prevent whistleblowing in the future. So those are my ideas of why it would be a, like, I don't think I just in my heart, I think the document security is much tighter in these buildings, but I also see a bunch of reasons why it shouldn't be accurately portrayed in a film. What do you think? Yeah, that's good point. Although I I pointed out that Daniel Alsberg made copies and smuggled them out uh-huh. of the Pentagon Papers. Yes. Constantly, constant copies. Yes. And I did like, you know, he gets asked, or no, you're talking about Ellsberg. I was thinking about uh, our guy from, yeah. the, from the report. Um, okay, so uh, uh, is leaking this memo an act of treason? Fred, your thoughts? Um. <sighs> depends on what the government was doing, right? Um, they said earlier that with the Falk- Falklands War, when Maggie Thatcher lied about sinking that Argentinian ship and the whistleblower came forward and said she lied, 
she wasn't going to, she was embarrassed and wasn't going to have that again. So she made sure that the Official Secrets Act was amended so that what they figured was the public good or the public right to know would be whatever the government said it would be. Right. Which included, as Catherine finds out, no legal defense because the way they word it is you can't, the person charged can't speak with anybody about what they leaked, even to a lawyer. That's so that's lame. That is the situation she's in. Right. Um, right. Our guy Ray finds which is going to have to get really clever to get her off. The they hood. really, yeah, they really wring their hands over that to the point where they think because it's so ironclad, they think she should plead guilty. But she points out <laughs> if she does, not only would her life would be personally screwed up for future jobs and uh, credit. But the precedent set where the government could get away with just about anything without any kind of a check. So those two motivations, and actually Ray Fines, Ben, gets the idea from her when she says about the defense was saving lives, that she wanted to save lives. Let's go into more detail on that later. Um, I want to kind of kind of follow along the timeline of the movie I think is 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 a good way to go uh with yeah, this one but yeah. um uh she gets it out she she passes it to a friend of hers who's an anti-war activist and mm-hmm. uh I like the scene there where you know she's kind of teasing her friend for you know information kind of thing and she says well you know is it anything that GCHQ would be uh, uh looking askance at and her friend immediately, like the the shields go up. She says, "Give me your phone," you know, like what the hell? Because yeah. now now she's on edge. Like, is my friend here to, like, bust me or something, or try to entrap me? Uh, and I like that scene. But uh, Catherine already took the battery out of her phone and was smart enough to make the call from a pay phone. So plus five mm-hmm. minutes on her. Of course, you can't do that anymore because we don't have pay phones anymore. Um. So whistleblowers got to figure something else out. Uh, but it does then go to another person and then to Martin Bright, who's a reporter at the, it's the, is it the, I know it's the observer. Maybe that's just the name of the, which the observer. It's not the national yeah, observer. They, tr- like that. they, that was the second one they go to uh, because the first one he said, didn't believe it. And ironically, the Observer was a conservative newspaper that had already made it made its position clear that it was pro-war. Mm. Is Tony Blair a conservative? I guess he is. No, uh, he wasn't he was. considered. I think he was part of the Liberal Party, but he went right along with Bush. I oh. think he was. He wasn't a Tory. He was maybe Labor. I want to say I Labor re- Party. I remember a lot of jokes being made at the time about just how much Tony Blair was kissing Bush's ass and just doing anything he wanted. Uh, yep. I'll, res- yep. I'll reserve judgment myself. Um, so now it's in the hands of our intrepid reporter. Um, well, what do you do with it first? I mean, first you got to find out if it's real, you know, um, obvious first thing is like, call this Frank Coza on the phone, ask him um, if mm-hmm. he wrote this memo. Um 
but he can't get Frank Coza on the phone. They're, they're just saying, sorry, you know, do you have an extension? Blah, blah, blah. Can't help you. Blah, blah, blah. It turns out to be quite a bit of work to finally get someone at the NSA to answer to the name Frank Coza. But that person hangs up the phone immediately when the journalist, that's our Reese Ifan's character, uh, identifies himself and, uh, and what his interest is in the memo. Uh, again, we do not even today know who Frank Coza is, um, which is weird. Uh, here, let's have you do this next part. What does he do? What does he think of next to try to authenticate the memo? Um, well, I start out by saying the thing that really mm -hmm. surprises me about this whole thing is how when he starts his investigation, even after Coza, how many government officials open up to him? Not only give him a wink and a nod, but but some of them tell him to keep, keep digging. Mm -hmm. That's what really jumped out at me. Really, in spite of that very strict Official Secrets Act, virtually every official he went to gave him some information to encourage him. Uh, the MI, just about the, all of them. The MI6 lady was pretty pointed about it. We're going to get yeah, to her. Yeah. <laughs> but he first went to this Paul Beaver, who is the international security consultant, who authenticate, authenticates the, the spy terminology, which I know is your wheelhouse, uh, Todd, that TOPI, which means target of primary interest, and uh -huh. QR, QRC, which is surge effort, and the whole idea of product lines, which means intelligence source, which the uh, woman at the tennis game uh, questions. You know, yeah, she used the product the, lines. They, that, they use the term like you know the WMD information is not our product. It's coming from somewhere, right. meaning it's coming from somewhere else, not from us. Right. That was so. He goes to him first, uh, and then then the the tennis club friend, now, the hold, gal we're talking. Hold about. on, because I got a I got another little bit of alphabet soup okay. thing to mention. Uh, the QRC surge. Uh, Google that one. Uh, that stands for quick response capability, referring, at least in one source, says referring to stepping out of routine management rules to get equipment or deploy personnel. Interestingly enough, when I Google all the, I tried different ways to QRC surge, quick response capability, U.S. intelligence, NSA, all sorts of stuff. I can't find a single reference on the internet to QRC surge that is not referring directly to this memo. So I could not find oh. out if this is an actual thing that we do, if it's a like a, you know, sidestep kind of policy or whatever. There's no information about it. This is the only time it's ever come up is in this memo officially. So it Which might, is in might be something we're not even supposed to know about. Okay. Because mm. I was wondering if you meant just it was a creation of the movie or or something real that just happens to be in the movie. No, it was in the memo, but it's never been okay. mentioned, to my knowledge, it's never been mentioned publicly except in this memo. It's possible we, Maybe they put, we are not even supposed to know that QRC surges exist, yeah. and that might have been part Maybe of they why the, they were yeah. mad about the memo getting leaked. Sure. Mm. 
maybe they put the gag on it th- after that came out. But it's weird because they put it right there in the in the memo to the GCHQ people. So presumably, GCHQ well, staff but, is supposed to know what a QRC surge is. Right, but they're supposed to keep their mouths shut. Yeah, official right? secrets act. Right. So yeah, you're you were I interrupted you. Thanks for letting me get that out. Um you wanna oh, no. talk um, about Martin's I didn't know how far you want to go, I'm but sure. yeah. Um did you have more on that? There was uh, then after uh, Peter's tennis club friend, there was uh Ed's retired CIA source. And uh, I thought I really like this rear admiral Nick Wilkinson. Because he used, he didn't come right out and say it, but he used what I used my teaching methods, which is the Socratic method in teaching. He I'm didn't come pa- right I'm out. Gonna, I'm going to pause you a second. I want to tell the audience who this guy is. Who is he? All right. He was Defense Press and Broadcasting Adversary Committee, who could order a D notice against publication of the memo about about who could, I mean, he could shut him down supposedly with this D notice. Now you did a little further research on, on the D notice. I noticed. Yeah. I'll come, I'll come, I'll come back to my thoughts, but yeah, this is a guy whose job it is to let the press know, like, Hey, we, we need you to not talk about that. It's hush, hush. Right. It's, it would threaten national security. That's his job. Advisory. Right. And right up, right up front. Um, Who's the the reporter? Martin. Martin right. says, "I know that you could do this," and he said, "Yes, I could." But I think it's it's um, interesting how he handles it because, as I say, he uses the Socratic method on Martin uh, in an ingenious way by rather than implicating himself uh, throughout the discussion. He says things like, "What do you think?" or I think you might be overthinking, as usual, Martin, or you tell me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then he goes on to be pretty specific, and he goes on to tell Martin that he thinks all information collected in the name of the public should be made public. The only question is when. Uh, and then says that censorship, when called for, it should be based on security issues alone, not whether a news report might embarrass the government, which is more in the line of um, – the woman who resigned from Goldsmith's office, who we'll get to. So I thought there's a wink and a nod, but I, but I loved the way that this Nick Wilkinson um, handled Martin's question, because like I say, he uses the Socratic method to draw him out by saying things like, what do you think? Um, I think you might be overthinking, right? You tell me, you know? So he gets, he uses that Socratic method to kind of draw Martin out. And, uh, and again, encourage him like so many of these other uh, government folks do. Uh, yes, yes. Which I thought was interesting. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go in and, and pry around the edges of this scene a bit myself. I like the scene, and I think the movie makers like the scene. And I think it's I think it might be fudging with the facts a little bit because uh, it so happens when I looked up a D notice. Which is like so a D notice. It's it's what Martin is saying. Like, are you gonna issue one of these against us if I publish this story? Mm-hmm. A D notice is supposed to be a like, yeah, hey, don't fucking publish that. Um, it so happens that Admiral Wilkinson, this very character, wrote the definitive 
book on the subject. It's called Secrecy in the Media, the Official History of the United Kingdom's D-Notice System. He literally wrote a book just about this. Now, D-Notices, again, they originate in the run-up to World War I at the time. And for a long time, they were just considered very sensible, very pragmatic, and nobody really regarded them as an infringement on press freedom. Editors just thought like, well, hey, if the, if the, you know, in, if the brass is telling us this is a secret, then we're not going to publish it. That's fine. It was just considered patriotic. Uh, the first time they became controversial was in 1967 in something that became known as the D-Notice Affair, where the prime minister convened a tribunal to decide whether a newspaper called the Daily Express had violated the D-Notice um, agreement. Um, what happened, though, the tri that tribunal ruled that D-Notice's compliance is entirely voluntary and they don't have any legal status. So also I want to note that um, most of the officials, notice that Rear Admiral Wilkinson here is obviously he's very pro-press. He's pro-free speech. So, and this is typical of the people they nominate to this office. They don't tend to nominate the people that would tend to like issue a D notice against everything. They tend to give it to people that are pretty liberal in their thoughts about like what should be made public as we can see Wilkinson is. So what I'm trying to say is that D notices are not as scary as they're made out to be in this movie. Martin Bright would know that and this scene, I think, is a little contrived for the purposes of the movie so that we can let Admiral Wilkinson make his points to the audience, which I think are good points. It's a good scene in the movie. I just don't think it actually would go down this way. Well, based on I, I, you could you. Yeah, you could look at it that way. But also, I think you could say and this is kind of what I thought, especially after I read what you dug up is that Martin was being extremely deferential to him. And I'm sure knowing what you all just said, that it would was not binding, but just his way of being courteous and getting him to come out a little bit more, uh, that kind of thing. Right, right. But, you know, you're, you're, and you're right, because the movie doesn't come right outright and say, if we get a D notice, we're fucked. But I think the movie is getting to like have its cake and eat it too in a way that it kind of wants mm -hmm. us to feel that way. And that's how it usually mm -hmm. denotices. I, I looked in the wiki. I have a list of like every time they've shown up in any movie. Uh, they've shown up in like Mission Impossible movies and stuff like that. And I think it's sexy. Mm -hmm. It's more sexy for the audience to think of them as this big, bad sledgehammer of government control. But they're, they're mm -hmm. really kind of paper tigers. Um mm -hmm. So that was, yeah, that was Wilkinson. Tell us too about, uh, tell us about the tennis club friend. This is Martin, Martin's, uh, his editor has a, uh, she's actually, yeah, has a, he says, she's actually a M16 contact. Uh huh. Go but ahead. Of course, when, when he says, can you talk to your MI6 contact? Peter says, I don't have an MI6 contact. Martin says, oh, I'm sorry. I meant your tennis club friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was, were cool. we meant to think that, that they were lovers. Ooh, that's a possibility. I don't think it almost seemed like it almost seemed like the, there was a little too much familiarity there. 
maybe, um, maybe they for went, them not to be, but maybe they went to college together. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so he's the M16 contact. Her name is Jacqueline, who tells Peter um, that his the evidence of the mobile labs, Colin Powell's, may be based on poor human intel from an Iraqi dissident who is not our product, which means turned, intelligence sorts. Turned out to be sorts. the case, right? Yep, and shouldn't be seen as our product. There is concern in certain quarters that intelligence may be manipulated to take this country to war. So tell your journalists to stop being so bloody loyal to Downing Street and start doing their job. However, when Peter asks her to confirm whether the NSA instructed GCHQ to assist in spying on Security Council delegates, which is what the memo said, she said that if she answered it, it would put her in breach of the Official Secrets Act. Oh, no. To which he said, very wisely, to deny it would not, to which she says she can neither confirm nor deny, which is the proverbial wink and a nod. Another wink and a nod. I think he gets. Right. So confirming it would be a violation. Denying it would not be a violation. So she's perfectly free to deny it. And simply by not denying it, what's she saying? She's confirming mm-hmm. it. Plus my points. Yeah. One of, yeah, one of an, in a long list of uh, government officials that are giving him more than a wink and a nod to proceed, which I, that was one of the biggest things that jumped out at me in this, this movie. Sure. And there's, and uh, there's another source that they're going after. That's uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, tell yeah, Ed's retired CIA, this grizzled old CIA, CIA guy. X, um, X-CIA, he says, X-CIA, as the, he says the, the paper in, keeps making a point of. Yeah, the intelligence about Iraq is sketchy at best and manufactured at worst. And the whole infamous CIA director, tenant who keeps saying that the intelligence was a slam dunk, which was bogus, we know that. God. And... Um, he pretty much says that, but no one wants to hear it, not even the press. And then when uh, Martin asks about Frank Kosas, he said he can't go that far and confirm that. But he still, again, tells him a hell of a lot, I think. Yeah. So they have the, uh, let's see, uh, you know, I worked in, in software uh, publishing and I was a quality assurance manager. Uh, for most of my career. And uh, what they have at the paper is what we would call a go, no go meeting, you know, where they, they, they gather up, you know, they haven't been able to get as much as they would like to authenticate the memo, but they all sit down and just powwow hard on like, okay, what are the facts that we've got in this? Yeah. Of course, our super excitable Reese Ifans, the uh, Ed character, is uh, on speakerphone because he's uh, he's their Washington correspondent. That's why he has a CIA source. And he's on the phone saying, yes, damn it, I got him on the phone. He said his name was Frank Coza. Um, so, so here's what they know. So they know that Coza exists. Um, they've established with an independent consultant that the language used in the memo is very authentic sounding. Um, what's this? Like you said, oh, they've checked with Wilkinson, and he's, as you said, kind of given Martin the the nudge to go ahead. 
the MI6 lady was very pointed <laughs> about it. Yeah. Do your job and quit just printing uh, out the press releases from uh, Downing Street. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see. Although they, you said, although they realize going ahead with the story may jeopardize the friendly relationship they have with the Blair government. Martin says, since when did we prioritize political access over investigative reporting? Yeah. So, yeah, because the one flunky says, hey, come on, we've already taken a position on supporting the war. Mm -hmm. You know, like that, that should be written in stone. I enjoyed, I enjoyed hearing that voice in the room. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that the, the editor-in-chief uh, was so like, fuck this <laughs> at the beginning. Um, yeah. but, but is legitimately won over, over the arguments overall, this, all the scenes in the press room, uh, are my favorite parts of the movie. I, I really dug them. It makes me want to go see, um, let's see, what's that movie, Robert, the Robert Redford movie on the Watergate affair. All, all the president's men. I've still never seen it. This movie made me really want to watch it because <laughs> I like, well, I like since this we're, kind of stuff. Yeah. Since, since we're on the press. And uh, let's just say why they went ahead. I made a list of why they went ahead. So I said the reluctant conservative and previously pro-war observer newspaper after dogged investigative journalism by Martin and others decides to go ahead with the story <laughs> for the following reasons, other than the fact that it's a hell of a story, right? Yeah. So number one, because they go through this in the editor room, they know that Koza sent a memo, right? They know that that exists. Beaver says the language is authentic. Wilkinson says the while the publication may embarrass both governments, he doesn't believe it poses a security risk to the British people or the armed forces. The associate editor, Peter, says that the publication might prevent a war and save lives, which would later, as we know, would be Catherine's defense. And the M16 source would neither confirm nor de deny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, and then the, in the end, the grizzled old editor says, yes, we do support the war. And, but Peter is right. This is a good fucking story, <laughs> yeah. which I guess trumps everything. Um, yeah. Now, Let's something, see. something I think we've neglected to mention so far, which I want to point out right now is like, why, why they're being so careful? Like, what's the counter case? What are they afraid of about the memo? Well, they're afraid the memo well, is they faked. And right. there's a few reasons the memo might be faked. After all, they did get it from a known, a, a very, apparently a very high-profile anti-war activist. So the anti-war movement... Well, that's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they poo-pooed it. That's why they poo-pooed it at first, once they heard that. Right. And it, but then the more evidence started coming in. So yeah. Somebody also comes up with the less plausible idea but still worth considering that it's a foreign intelligence agency that's trying to embarrass both the United States and the British government at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the, but uh, yeah, so hurrah, the memo does get published. Um, so again, obviously though, there's a lot of people out there that would be eager to find reasons to discredit the memo and the Drudge Report website which I've never heard really good things about myself. No. Um, but they, uh, you know, to their 
credit as far as doing a good job of what they're trying to do based on their beliefs is that they notice something really messed up about the memo, which is that it uses uh, British spelling for certain words. I forget which words they were exactly, but you know how a you know a color is a is a six letter word. In, oh, you in oh you are yeah British right right right. Oh oh you are yeah uh huh stuff yeah they give a couple like, examples two or three yeah. things like that, and what happened there was that. Um, a young staffer at the observer, uh, you know, who's given, I don't, I don't know. She was somewhere in the chain of printing the memo. Yep. She used spell check on the memo and it changed all the American spellings of words into British spellings of words. All right. I think it's good, like good work on the judge report to notice that I am really, I mean, obviously, apparently it really happened. I, I, it's not minus spy points, but it's definitely minus newspaper points for something yeah. this important to, to have that obvious of a mistake slip through. Like that's the sort of thing yeah. where the, the editor in chief should have been personally managing every step of the process all the way from right. word and yet, to print. And yet as, as much as that's true, it was still an honest mistake. That's true. But well, should have been caught, right? You're right. Yeah. Should have been caught. Uh, the other thing, too, about embarrassing that should be brought up, mm, I think. Sure. Most of these so-called security threats from the Pentagon Papers to this, right, um, to Watergate, most of the time when administration, to the Falklands, as we saw, most of the time when administrations cry national security to muzzle a story, it's usually not. It's usually embarrassing information, like the Pentagon Papers showed, like this showed. Um, most of the time, national security isn't at risk, um, other than maybe some of the things that Snowden leaked, uh, because some of those things could have been shown to leak intelligence sources that could have been at risk. But so many of the others were just plain embarrassment. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. I think we need to keep that in mind too. Well, you know, shame is apparently one of the most powerfully primordial motivating factors in human behavior. People mm -hmm. will go so far out of their way to avoid embarrassment. Even risking lives. Yes. yes. Even to risk lives. It's very powerful. Like the Pentagon Papers did uh, and this did, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really the sad part, that there really isn't national security issues. It's just that every every government claims that. And then they have to go through court and the Supreme Court and Ellsberg had to be on the run. And then the Supreme Court had to make the decision. And yeah, until they found it, when they looked at when they looked at the Pentagon Papers, they saw that it, there was no <laughs> national security risk. It was just embarrass, embarrassing information. I got to be honest, um, when I was watching this movie... I really like I, I I appreciate this that this movie did this for me in that like I didn't think myself that the memo was that big of a deal. And I, I, I had to go through all the steps of the movie walking me through all these characters and their reasoning and their arguments and their uh, passions and ideals to to understand that this kind of thing really is that big of a deal. 
you know i kind of without the benefit of this movie if you'd told me about this memo i would have just kind of shrugged and said oh yeah i'm sure that shit goes on all the time um it, it this mo- this movie did a good job of convincing me uh that this is like total bullshit like you're not supposed to spy. yeah and that there's you're no one to spy on your there's allies some... and you're definitely not to spy on your allies yeah. in order to prosecute and get validation for an illegal fucking war <laughs> right but there's some people don't do nuance well and <laughs> there were those as we saw who couldn't get past the fact that she violated the official secrets act. That's all they cared about. Sure. Whether it was that guy from Scotland Yard or that woman at the immigration authorities, right? Or I'm sure a lot of British people themselves, all they saw was she violated and they don't care or don't understand the nuance that she was trying. And she explained that very well Mm -hmm. to that Scotland Yard guy. She does. That I was representing the British people, not the British government. And like I said to you before, yeah, she says governments governments <laughs> change. I'm not, I'm not employed right. by the government. I'm employed by the people. That's who I answer. But here's the big difference, and I said this, I said this in my notes between Britain and the United States. Even though we get our constitution based on British common law, ours is written on paper. Thomas Jefferson was one of the holdouts with the rest of the anti-federalists because they were so gun-shy of a strong central government, which they knew they needed to get anything done because with the Articles of Confederation, they couldn't tax, they couldn't form an army or anything like that. So with reservations, the anti-federalist says, okay, we're going to go along with the stronger central government, but we want individual rights printed down. Oh, well, they're there. Well, no. They're there, but we want them printed out, printed out more specifically. So they called for a Bill of Rights, right, mm-hmm. to spell out individual rights of press and freedom and religion, right? We have that. We have the luxury of that. The British don't, ironically. Can you remind me? The British don't have a written constitution. Can you, can you remind me? Uh, I don't think I've ever been super clear on when exactly the Bill of Rights was drafted. It was, right, just uh, – I don't know exactly. It was after, obviously, the or while the Constitution yeah, was Yeah, but going was it on. a couple years uh, after or a couple decades after? Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. We could look it up. But yeah. the main point is he was the, – they were holding out, right? The Anti-Federalists, uh, Jefferson and company were holding out until – we're not going to sign on to this Constitution unless you spell out the rights. And a lot of people argue – and you could. You, you could say that the Constitution – itself had those rights in but he wanted them more specific and i'm glad he did and now you're because that protects us now contrast it for me with because i don't know how it is in britain britain doesn't have a foundational document constant they don't know they don't have a written constitution so everything they get away with based on precedent is that what we yeah. mean when we say british they, common law and they argue they yeah they argue those ideas but they don't have the due process like we do, right? They argue those ideas and they win, just like Catherine came out here, right? It's not like they don't have any due process, but they're not as specific as ours are. And we saw, I remember in the 80s, the way um, the Thatcher government rounded up um, Irish Republican and the IRA 
soldiers and uh, threw them in jail, detainees without lawyers, shoot to kill, um, uh, shoot to kill orders. Mm. Um, uh, so many uh, rights that were denied them. And they were always banning books. BBC was always banning music um, that you didn't see over here. Um, so that's why, that's one of the big differences between the freedoms they have and the freedoms we have. So let's talk about, because let's, let's, let's talk about this little difference of opinion that we have on how she gets treated. Um, to set that up, uh, you know, let's, let's run through real quick. The memo gets published. Uh, they launch an internal investigation at the GCHQ. She gets freaked out. She says, like, I'm making life hell for my coworkers. She comes forward and confesses. And they interrogate her, and they let her go. They say, like, we'll let you know in a few months whether or not we're going to charge you. Now, I, this is pursuant to everything that you've been talking about, right? Um, I looked at that, and I thought about, like, uh, what, what I think we would have done with Edward Snowden if we'd gotten a hold of him. Um, what's the name of that? Is it an army chick, a trans woman that's in prison right now? Do you know her name? I forget it. I forgot. Uh, Chelsea. Yes. Chelsea Manning. I think it is. Yeah. Um, there you go. And really all of the whistleblowers where it came down to intelligence type stuff. Like I thought the U S was a lot more like slammed down. I didn't, I didn't well imagine if you could the difference was if you can prove that okay. security was breached and that there was a national security like with snowden i guess they could prove that there were security uh breaches there and that people in the field were at risk but daniel ellsberg fought that fight as far as freedom of the press is going right um yeah but did, did he, fact, i have a question for you did he fight that fight from inside the bars or outside the bars? Did they let him, did they say like, like in this was, case, did they he say was like, on the run. It went to court, right? Okay. It went to court and let me see here. But they didn't just let him walk out freely and say like, okay, well, I don't know. Well, he was on the run. He was on the run and was in hiding all the time. But the right of the press to publish the Pentagon papers was upheld in the Supreme Court case, New York Times versus U.S., it has since been referred to as one of the pillars of First Amendment rights with respect to freedom of the press. It is a major difference between official secrets and the Pentagon Papers is that the British, and I just got done explaining that, does not have a written constitution that spells out and guarantees rights like speech and press along with due process that goes along with it. Um, and it's as, And like I said, yeah, he was on the run and it went to court and he was scared, but he won because right, that's in the New York Times one, right, right, but that's, what, that's and they what saw that there was no re when they when the judge looked at the Pentagon Papers, it saw that there was no national security threat there. It was just embarrassment. That's what I'm saying. She didn't have to go on the run. They just let her walk out. I know what you're saying about like uh, definitely what the U.S. government should do and like what our rights are as citizens and stuff compared to Britain, but. I still just – I still honestly feel in my gut. We couldn't if, have gotten away. You know how Maggie Thatcher amended the Official Secrets Act? We couldn't have done that with our Constitution and Bill of Rights. That's true. That's the difference. That's true. I get that. I just think that I still in my gut, I feel like if Catherine Gunn had been an American citizen that did what she did, 
our government would have found a reason to keep her. They would have lost in court. Yes, but they wouldn't have. Because they, they thought they found a reason with Ellsberg, too, but they lost. Once this is out in the public, like the people, oh. the people that are the countries that are cited in this memo are pissed off. They ca- they call it an outrage. Um, it's a massive uproar, and they uh, refuse to vote. Um, they don't vote up or down on the war. They just say like, "You you fuck you. We're not we're not voting for this." So without the vote, the Bush administration now resorts to the faulty intelligence supporting the WMD theory. Uh, it was a little unclear to me the timeline of whether or not this article came out before or after Colin Powell made his totally fucked up speech. Um, but uh, yeah. So like we talked about at the top of the episode, you know, you're going to go to war. You're going to go to war. You can't find this reason to do it. You'll find another. And that's what happened. Um there was the internal investigation. We kind of covered that. We kind of jumped ahead and, and did a bit of that. We talked about Special Branch. And we talked about what her response is to the Special Branch guy. I work for the people, not the government. So, yeah, I think we're ready to go to the section uh, that we have titled Liberty and Government Pressure on Catherine. She tells her husband that she has to admit to the leak because if the Americans are refusing to admit the memo was real and if she doesn't tell the truth, they'll get away with saying it was a fake. And they're questioning everybody at work, interrogating my friends, asking people to name names, and there'll be a question mark in hundreds of people's files because of me. Um, Everyone at work knows what the NSA asked us to do was illegal. If I don't say it was me, We'll go to war based on blackmail and lies, and I can't live with that. This part, she later sees, is naive, right? Uh, the very fact that what she decides to do and when she does it, like the whole war would be dependent on her. And she realizes later that that was naive. Um, if she, with all her hand rigging about not only releasing the memo, but owning up to it, could ever have a chance of stopping a war that the powers that be were going to go ahead with anyway. All right. So she realizes that um, she's not going to have much to do with that. Although that was part of her thinking in a small way before the war actually started, I think she thought, and I think a lot of it was the principle of the thing about the lie. And before the war actually happened, I think in her own naive mind, I think she still thought that maybe the release of the memo would do more than embarrass, but, Possibly stop the war. Yeah, but later she, on, like I that's said, that's what she wanted. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't do this just to embarrass the government. No, 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 no. And uh, she, cert- she really she certainly uh, didn't do it to improve her husband's chances of getting naturalized <laughs> as a British citizen. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I don't think she realized they'd play dirty with that whole thing to either mm-hmm. until they did right yeah um the scotland yard guy a couple times he says you're supposed to be a spy and now you can't really pick and choose who you want to spy on just because you don't like the whole idea of spying on the security council and she comes back and says i don't object to collecting intelligence to help prevent a 
terror attack, but I object to gather intelligence to help fix a vote at the UN uh, and to deceive the world into going to war. Um, and then they bring up the whole thing about her husband being a Muslim, and she points out that her husband has no love for Saddam, by the way, that he's um, killing the Kurds, which he is one, right? Mm -hmm. And then he comes back and says, so if you don't like Saddam so much, why would you leak a memo intended to help, intending to help remove Saddam? She says that by attacking, and see, this is where nuance again is again, which some people don't seem to have, uh, that you're not just attacking Saddam, you attack the whole country of over 30 million people. And I cannot bear to think of the pain and suffering that that will cause. And that's another thing where I just, that pesky nuance coming up again, right? That she's thinking through that the world isn't black and white, good and bad. Saddam has to go and everything will be fine. She's thinking about the whole repercussions and the fog of war and all the innocent lives that will be taken. Iraqi, British, American, Canadian, right? Mm. Uh, and in the end, right, we see in the credits just how many Iraqis are killed in that unnecessary war. Uh, I think 151,000 to over a million. Um, and like I say, that those are those pesky nuances that people just don't want to consider. Um, and uh, so she's told about, like you say, from that one uh, public defender, she's told about Ben Emerson and the Liberty Lawyers, um, who try to pump her up and tell her that she's doing a good thing. Now, who are, who, information are, who, are try... who are the Liberty Lawyers? Let's let's set that up. They're a, um, they're a... they're mm -hmm. they're a bunch of civil liberty lawyers who help people in this kind of case. We have those in uh, this country, most likely known for working on death row for death row uh, mm -hmm. prisoners. Um, they work out of I want to say they started out of the University of Chicago. Right. Um, also, civil rights cases, freedom of speech kind of yeah. stuff. I forget. There's a there's a yeah, there's and of an course, organization we have in the U.S. I, their name escapes me right now. Um, civil liberties. That's yeah. Civil liberties, ACLU. Yeah, that's them. That's them. So these are these are right. those kind of people. Right. They'll take right. they'll take her um, they'll take her case not because they're getting paid for it. They're going to take their her case because they're principled. Yeah, and I would think there'd be even more of a need for them, considering how, like I said before, they don't have a Bill of Rights that spells out um, First Amendment rights like we have. So there'd be even be more. And they were even they were at a loss and didn't know how to pursue this because of how ironclad that uh, that law was, so that you couldn't even. The scene, uh, contact a lawyer. The scene where they first meet is uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and and is some of the best acting from uh, what's her name? <laughs> Again, podcast brain, or maybe it's the beer. What's her name? Kira Knightley. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I really like you know because Ben's got to, and this is our Ray Fine's character. Uh, Ben's got to do his due diligence and peel away the layers. Like he says, particularly the question where he says, you know, a lot of people that approach us are, to be frank, attention seekers. Is that you? She gets very defensive over that. And he's like, no, 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 no. We just like, we just have to 
be sure. Um, don't, don't be afraid. What I see, like I see that you chose loyalty over your country, over loyalty to your government. Uh, you have nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing this. I think that speaks very highly of you. So the process by which he assures himself that she's legit and assures her that that's their stance was, was good for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, as, yep. uh, as you have uh, a lot of in your notes, they've got a sticky, they're in a sticky wicket <laughs> because of yeah, the... that, that whole Falkland things. Yeah. The Falkland thing uh, wrapped up the whole whistleblower. Um, appeal right. that maggie thatcher amended and i'll put so i'll put yeah. i'll put the i'll put the little color on that too that was in the 80s uh i guess it was uh during the yeah the like you say the falklands war which was britain versus argentina right they were fighting over in an, an island okay. and uh off the coast of argentina and that yeah. was in the 80s and britain the british and and the guy the whistleblower in so. that case was uh, uh a guy named clive ponting and i think it was a sailor Oh, really? Okay. Well, somehow he had access sure. to Ministry of Defense documents with, with which he shared not with a foreign intelligence agency, but just with a, another agency in, like, basically a member of parliament is who he uh, shared it with. And that was the first time the Official Secrets Act, uh, which uh, goes back to 1911, was when it was first written. Uh, was used as a charge for interdepartmental sharing of intel. Now, he got off, like we said. He was acquitted, and uh, as you've said, immediately after that, it was amended so that um, essentially the public interest is whatever the government says it is. And you can't, he couldn't use, so she can't use the public interest defense. Oh, no, Fred, what is she going to do? She's fucked. Well, she, I think Ben uses her own words when she says, I wanted to save lives. And he said, that's it. And the one gal says, you mean you're going to put the whole war on trial? And he says, yes. Uh, and then they jumped on to the, the saving lives aspect and uh, the questionable change of mind of uh, Lord uh, Goldsmith. So, yeah, so that's right. We were to the, so that now the defense he's landing on is the saving lives. Now, to make this case, you can't say that you're saving lives in a legal war. So, like, you, it has to be proven to be an oh, illegal that's war. The other, that's what I was, yeah, and, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. That's the other thing that's different, I think, between us and the British. Obviously, they hang a lot on the UN itself, right? We have, we've always thumbed our nose at the UN and made fun of it and looked down on it and so on. We're obviously the British respect it more otherwise, because that's what the whole illegality was, was hanging on, right? The UN sanction, where we've never let that bother us when we've, Ordered. Why would we? Well, right. The point Sorry. of uh, what's the point of signing on to a international peace organization if you're not going to go by it? But it 
but the the British's credit is they obviously were hanging the whole legality on it with the the UN sanctions, right? And then when it was found, what they did, hence the illegality. For example, when we mined the harbor in Nicaragua and it was found that we were supporting a war through the, not the Defense Department, but through the CIA with the Contras in Nicaragua, that was against international law to attack a sovereign nation, but we did it through the CIA with Reagan. But we just yawned and thumbed our nose at it. Well, obviously, the British are hanging a lot on this whole UN permission thing, which is another big difference, I think, between us and the Brits. Mm. You know? Sure. So I want to I want to pry apart this defense a little bit because it's a, it's kind of the last you know like like the uh, climax of the movie so to speak. Um, Goldsmith that we've mentioned a couple times he's kind of like at, uh, the attorney general or like or he's like the I don't know the legal advisor to the government and he's a guy that says uh, the war. Oh, and by the way, we should mention too that at this point the war has broken out. Like the you know, it, at this point in our story, it's too late to stop the war. The war definitely happened. Um, now it's just a matter of what uh, what Catherine's fall fallout is going to be. So they're looking at this, and this guy Goldsmith. Uh, I'm looking at your notes here. He said the war was legal just three days before the invasion. Mm-hmm. They to know what his position was at the time Catherine leaked the mm-hmm. memo because if he changed his mind oh right so i think his deputy if you're saying like, okay his yeah. deputy right so if go you're ahead. saying like go ahead britain britain british government they're hoping they're hoping just as much as bush does that the unsc will approve the war and then this memo put a wrench in that. So I think the point this movie's trying to say is if they can prove that Goldsmith changed his mind right. after the memo was leaked, then that proves that they were under pressure from the Bush administration. Right. right? Yeah. Have I got yeah. that right? And we okay. go down to his deputy. She resigned because she said in her letter of resignation. And go ahead. Her name, her name is Elizabeth Wilm, Wilmshurst. Right. Yes, former deputy legal advisor to the Foreign Office to Lord Goldsmith. I, she resigned, apparently, over yeah. this. She said that it would not be lawful to use force without a new Security Council resolution. She said that Goldsmith, who was tasked to decide whether the war was legal or not for Blair, initially supported her view. In fact, he told Blair that if military action were taken, he expected the government to be accused of acting unlawfully. She said that it was a detailed advisory document because that's when they asked her if it was written. She said it was a detailed advisory document and would have and would have been his position at the time Catherine Gunn printed the COSO memo, memo on February 3rd. And then I said, spoiler alert, this written document of Goldsmith's position on the illegality of the war will be the smoking gun defense of Catherine's that they won't have to use because the government withdraws the charges because they know they can't rebut them. 
And then Goldsmith goes to Washington for what I call a come to Jesus or Don Carleone, make him an offer he can't refuse moment, my words, where he changes his tune. And according to Wilmhurst, in nine short paragraphs, he said that the UN's authorization for the 1991 Gulf War could be reactivated to legitimize a new war with Iraq. And then this, what this reminded me of, the rationalization sounds suspiciously like John Hughes in hair-splitting redefinition of torture by the same administration who scrambled to redefine and manipulate president to get their way. How convenient, as Church Lady would say. Goldsmith told Blair what he wanted to hear, and Wilmhurst says, at best, he was persuaded to support a really fringe point of view. So, um, Todd, I couldn't help but re be reminded of John Yu and how he had to scramble to come up with a redefinition of torture in the same way they take this bogus authorization of the 1991 Gulf War, which was different, and say, okay, since the UN authorized that, they should be able to authorize this. That's really a reach. And it reminded me of the I John agree. Yu. And I want to, I want to, I want to reiterate my point about the John Hughes situation that I think is was so important in Zero Dark Thirty and and the torture report is that you know the the National Legal Council their first priority is to protect the administration. Yeah. You know that's that's lawyerly thinking. Protect your client, and so their arguments are always going to be so ironclad in order to protect the administration that the unintended fallout of that is that the administration is then perceived as so uh, on solid ethical legal ground that everyone underneath them, all the underlings, all the middle staffers, like it would be unpatriotic to not use all the powers available to you. You know, mm -hmm. that's the bind that that this kind of bullshit like puts our hard serving, hard working, I believe, uh, you know, ground level intelligence and defense personnel at such risk. Yeah, but the CIA has bitten been bitten by that dog before. Um, and they know they'll be caught they'll left, you know, even if like we said before, if Reagan and and, and Bush are given plausible de deniability. By not knowing, right, they'll be left right. hand in the bag not and have true. been. The CIA will, it'll be their heads. Uh, and that's why they're very reluctant because they've been bitten by that dog before. All right. So, uh, you know, now Wilmshurst doesn't actually testify at Catherine's trial. In fact, nobody does. Uh, like like you said, like when they, so they're pushing, I mean, they're pushing, they're doing a brinksmanship thing here. They're saying like, hey, give us the documents. And if you, if you don't give us the documents, then that means you're hiding something, mm -hmm. right? And when it, so they go all the way up to the, up to the brink in, in the trial and she still always has this option and her sentence is going to be pretty light, I forget exactly what it was. I think it was like nine months or yeah, something. Yeah, I kept waiting for them. Um, I, I kept waiting for them to bring in the librarian that met with Smiley. <laughs> <laughs> Which librarian was that? From the oh, spy yeah, came from, in from the cold. 
<laughs> you know, you said they didn't bring in anybody, right? I kept waiting for Smiley to bring in the librarian. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they push it and push it. And uh, again, I just want to underline, like, her sentence wasn't going to be that harsh. It wasn't like she was looking at, like, 20 years. You mean if she, if she put like guilty? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. He, that'll be our defense. They said, and we'll just plead for leniency. But then she said the practice. Which, which I think is even more to her credit. Yeah. That, uh, you know, this easy, this very easy way out is is offered to her. But she's like, no, fuck you. We're going to tell the right. truth. I, I love yeah. her. Um, so, it yeah, it goes to trial. She, she sticks with the not guilty plea. And the big, I don't know, guess surprise of the movie, it's definitely surprising to the judge or the magistrate. I don't know what they call him in England. Um, is that the government is dropping all charges. Yep. Just drop, just dropping. Like, uh, we're not going to present any evidence. Uh, we're not going to call any witnesses. Uh, we're just going to take her at her and, word, which right. and is... Yeah, and Ben... On the one hand, somebody might say, okay, let's just shut up and get out of here. But but Ben doesn't want to let him get off the hook so easily. And that's what he ends up saying to the friend, friend on the beach. In other words, you put this woman through such hell, we demand to know you have the right to tell us what was the deal, oh, you right. know, and which I thought was good. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah you yeah. put this real woman through. And so it's not enough to say, okay, goodbye. You've got your freedom. No, you can't walk away like that. Not so fast. And yet they do. Right. And they just clam up. And that's the, again, it's sort of like the way the, um, uh, you know, our MI6 agent uh, at the tennis court uh, could confirm or deny. Yeah. But the fact that she does neither tells you everything yep. you need to right. know. And the fact that the government is uh, refusing to confirm or deny uh, uh, the validation of their charges against Catherine mm -hmm. tells us yeah, everything we need to know. What about this one thing that was just dropped that Ed stumbled on, this OSB, the Office of Special Plans, about this cabal in America that he comes upon? This is the uh, Reese, the Reese Ifans character? Or Peter, you said Peter. That's, no, uh, Ed. That's Ed, the guy with the leather jacket. Ed. Oh, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He said, you know, Bush wasn't getting the intelligence he wanted, so Rumsfeld bypassed the CIA and set up his own intelligence unit. It's like, what? You know, they had raw, they they fed raw, unvetted intelligence to Bush and Powell, who led us into war. That's like a whole other movie right there. You know, and that was just kind of dropped on us. But that was the pressure that uh, lawyers who represented those guys put the full court uh, press on uh, Goldsmith when he came to Washington, which got him to change his mind. That's, I mean, and that's this the the lingering question to me still is like, what the fuck is a QRC surge, and who the hell is this like mm -hmm. uh, uh, Peter Koch, Fred Koch, Coma? Oh, what's his name? Anyways, who's that guy, and what the hell is a QRC surge? We still don't yeah. know. We still don't know. 
Fellow Spy Nerds, at the risk of boring you, I've got uh, an editorial note that I feel like I need to make. Uh, several times during this podcast, I referred to the QRC surge as something that was uh, very, very difficult to find any uh, information about online. Since recording, we did find that uh, this policy is published on the Department of Defense's uh, website. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. If you're watching the video, you can see it on screen right now. Uh, I just wanted to say I apologize for maybe making it sound more spooky or inscrutable than it actually is. Uh, it's very important to me that uh, we you know, strive for accuracy on this show. Uh, sorry about that. I did like too that all the help she got, even that uh, her MP was pretty cool. How he? Uh, you mentioned that too. I saw that in the notes. What? What do you mean, her MP? Her member of parliament. You know, MP? like how we have Congress people. She uh -huh. has a member of parliament. In other words, her representative, her local representative. Uh, okay. Right. And okay, so okay. that's when you know, that's the first thing when that when they were starting to deport. Her husband, they said, get a hold of your local MP. They got it, the number, and uh, he's on the phone with that immigration person who starts to say, you know, you're deforting this, you know, or, uh -huh. you know, questioning her patriotism. And uh, he says, I think deporting her husband when she's facing a trial looks like bullying, which gets her to back off. Yeah, we kind of glossed, we, we kind of glossed over that subplot in the movie because it wasn't it wasn't a right. lot of tradecraft but it, involved in it, but but yeah. it's it, those were good. Scenes. Yeah, but it's he was the last and maybe the most minor government official, okay, um, mm -hmm. that helped her, right? Um, and that's the thing that jumped out at me. She, uh, I think I list six of them, and like I said, he may have been the most minor, but still, there were six government officials that that helped her and her lawyers. And the journalist pursue this case, which I thought was was surprising and and kind of nice. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. Fred, I, I already know that you you liked the movie. How much did you like the movie? Give it a one to five and tell us. I liked why. the five, and again, I like movies that are truthful and it really when i looked it up everything i read about it says that it's an accurate account of an actual event that dealt with exposing the truth and that the film remains faithful to telling that truth especially when considered the lives the event intended to save even though it failed in that regard often a film of this nature will sacrifice truth for drama but in this case in my opinion it had both right it had great drama and an accurate portrayal of the dark politics that occurred in both Britain and the United States in search of a pretext for war. Um, so like the report, I loved it as a morality play. And I don't care if it's a bunch of people in a room talking. Um, really. <laughs> We've established yeah. that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. To me, the, what they're talking about is riveting and important and the very fact that the drama was good, but it didn't seem to sacrifice what really happened, too. So I give it a five. I, I love morality plays that are accurate and authentic and well done, regardless of the 
so-called entertainment car chase factor. Sure. Sure. Well, um, uh, Fred, once again, uh, I'm, I'm a little, uh, on the other side of the fence, as far as my personal, personal entertainment value that I, that I pulled from this movie, it's pretty low. Uh, I definitely, I'm happy I saw the movie. I'm happy I learned about this stuff. I'm happy we did this podcast. Uh, you know, do, do, am I rushing out to put this DVD on my shelf? No, I'm not. Uh, I, I wouldn't even really say I need to watch it again. Although I gotta say once again, the newsroom stuff was so fucking cool that I'm bumping it up. This obviously for me, this is going to be very similar to the torture report. Uh, I do think this was a slightly more enjoyable movie. Uh, and the newsroom stuff was the major reason for it. I'm just going to bump it up a, a half a point and I'm going to be at a 2.5. Um, and that's, and that's just us. We're, we're not professional movie critics. Uh, we're really here to talk about the tradecraft, but it is fun to just at least tell people what we thought of the movie. Yep. Uh, I like, I like car chases. Yeah. I like so do I. Fiction. So oh, do I. They have their place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the real important stuff. We're going to get into uh, our worst tradecraft of the film. Uh, I see you were a good yep. boy this I time. I stuck to three. You didn't give me five. You stuck to three. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, my worst tradecraft of this film, number three, number two, number one. Uh, number three, D notices from my research don't have nearly as much bite as the film tries to imply. I think that scene was somewhat manufactured in order to let the filmmakers make their points through the character of Admiral Wilkinson. Number two, I think document security at Catherine's office would actually in reality be a lot tighter than what we've seen. I already talked about my reasons why I think that might be intentional to kind of gloss over in a film. Uh, my number one worst is now I'm not sure if they were being honest about this or just being dicks on purpose, but this fucking idea that Catherine might be motivated by uh, uh, her husband's like uh, situation, you know, like, like, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And I love it as my number one because it highlights this, like what you call lack of nuance. And I just think sometimes it's just ham headedness of thinking that like all Iraqis are the same, you know, of not understanding right. the, the intersectional differences between mm -hmm. Sunnis and uh, Shiites and Kurds, etc. But the idea that her connection to her husband would be a motivation for her leaking. Either they're incredibly stupid or they're just being assholes. Number one, worst tradecraft. What do you got for worst? Um, the full court, I put the full court press pressure that the attorneys for Bush, Powell, Rumsfeld and Rice put on Lord Goldsmith when he went to DC that got him to change his mind about the legality of going to war that in Ed's words, he said, fucking cave to them when he, his country needed him the most. 
Uh, number two, observer journalist Ed tells of the Office of Special Plans where Rumsfeld bypassed the CIA to set up his own intelligence unit that fed raw, unvetted intelligence to Bush and Powell who lied us into war. That's a good one. And the worst one is the whole dirty deed that the memo revealed of the national security's attempt to spy on the communication of UN Security Council members to blackmail them into supporting the war. So the whole memo is my worst tradecraft. All right, real quick, real quick, Fred. And this is fine with me either way. But it seems like your top three are the, the, or your worst list is the intelligence actions that you object to the most, as opposed to being like the intelligence actions that you think were ineffective or unrealistic. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think you could say that right down to me. Because I really, when we get into these, right, right down to me giving um, mm-hmm. the movie a five stars, because mm-hmm. I can't, yeah. I yeah. cannot yeah. separate the morality from the deeds. I, I can't. I just can't. So you're right. That's, you're right. I just can't. And that's, and that's especially when they're that's, truthful. That's okay. Yeah. And that's fine with me. And I remember when I first recruited you to ask you to be the new co-host of this podcast. You specifically I said, you. like, there's just one thing. Yep, you want to be able to fucking speak your mind and <laughs> yeah, get, on I your, can't. get on your soapbox. Well, and I said, yeah. fine. So all I'm doing, I'm I'm not asking you to change a thing. I just thought it would be, a, I thought this is a great time to make sure we, that we in the audience, we understand, like, you and I might be coming at it from yeah. slightly different Yeah, I cannot, right, cool. I cannot separate, especially something like this that actually happened and cost lives. I can't separate the morality from the deed. Um, but I've even said that in some of them. I, uh, uh, Some of the ones that I've put down for worse tradecraft, I've usually said, although mm-hmm. someone might think that's good tradecraft because it worked, right? Right. I think in our last episode, you thought killing the librarian was one of your worst. I yeah. thought it was one of the best. Right. And that's an example of how I can't separate the morality from the deed. But you're right to to that's yeah. fine, dude. Hey, hey, you you do you. We're doing we're doing great work here. Uh let's go over to best. Okay. Um best number three, it's a slight one. There's not I mean, there's not a huge amount of tradecraft in this film. Um it's it's more a whistleblower film than a than a uh, it's more a legal legalese film than a than a true spy film. Uh, number three best I liked I really just enjoyed the way that uh, Catherine's anti war contact like immediately froze up and threw her defenses up and said give me your phone as soon as she mentioned GCHQ. Uh, that was that was cool. Uh, number two best. I like this a lot was uh, using that contractor to authenticate the spy lingo in the memo. Uh, that was, that was fun. Yeah. You stuff. didn't, it, they were a step uh, ahead. Those air force contractors you didn't like in the last one. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Um, and easily my number one, my number one best it's MI six. It's that whole thing of like, well, I can't, if I confirm your suspicions, I'm in violation of the Official Secrets Act. Uh, well, if you deny it, you're not in violation. Mm-hmm. So are you going to deny it? And she's like, mm. <laughs> that was yeah. great. Yeah. 
What do you get for Quest? Um, well, just the whole Emerson's decision, once they saw what they were up against with the Official Secrets Act that allowed no defense, is to place Catherine's entire defense on the legality of the war. Um, once they got wind of the probability that Lord Goldsmith uh, was changed his mind from the time of Catherine's leak um, and how the pressure he got from Washington. So they go ahead with the request of full disclosure from the government of all legal advice given by Goldsmith in the year leading up to the invasion, which con would contain, contain the smoking gun evidence of him, in fact, changing his mind. So that whole defense of um, going on with the legality of the war. And I, I remember at one point, the one lawyer said, you realize if they ever find weapons of mass destruction, this whole defense will be shot because then there will, would have been a reason to go to war and you couldn't use was, the lives. That was a risk they were right. taking. That was a risk they were right. taking for right. sure. Uh, number two, uh, mm. just a dogged old fashioned uh, investigative journalism to confirm and validate the story from legitimate and highly respected government officials uh, right on through. Um, that's what really stood out to me that um, most of the government officials that Martin um, and some of the others pursued gave them more than a wink and a nod to, to go ahead. Some said, just keep digging. And my best was, <laughs> even though we never meet him, Frank Koza's sending that memo to GCHQ that starts the whole ball rolling. Now, I saw that in your notes, and I want to interrogate you a little bit about that. Why do you why do you consider that good tradecraft? Because we wouldn't, none of this would have happened without it. Okay. So, uh, so you're giving it a top a, a number one for being realistic and thing. moral, because I mean, yeah, and again, go go back. It yeah, uh, he was the whistleblower. He really was the whistleblower, even though we never meet him or or they never meet him either. But he started the whole ball rolling. The whole, yeah, just that whole memo sent to them. Okay. Yeah. I, have, I, have, I have funny thoughts on that one, but but uh, I'll let it slide. What, uh, what are we going to do for a park bench rating here? Um, I think I, I, I managed to remember... I mean, we should definitely compare it very closely to the report. Yeah. Um, what did, I'm, I'm looking right now what 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 we give the report. Uh, let me let me sort this A to Z. Um, uh, okay, we landed on a three point five, so above the fold, you know, but not but not too far above, uh, mainly because. There was so little tradecraft in the movie, not because it was unrealistic. We thought both of these movies very realistic. How much of it is there? I think, I think my, I think our opening bit should just be another three point five. I think they're very comparable. All right. Any uh, okay? Any Go thoughts ahead. there? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's a that's a three point five park benches. Uh, thank you, audience, for. Uh, hanging out with us uh fred there's another thing i need to uh start asking you to do which is to uh ask i don't know if you know this but uh we have a computer assistant named mora mm -hmm. uh that uh that manages our our operations here in the secure facility that we uh do our operations oh. in and at the end of an episode 
at the end of an episode, uh, I like to ask my co-host to do the final thing of of asking Mora <laughs> to invoke Protocol Nine. Okay, ready? All right, Mora, please oh, yeah. invoke Protocol Nine. Protocol Nine initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in twenty seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler. <laughs>